Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got a sort of reading series uh, episodes. Episode, rather. We're, we're doing Gorovich versus Gorovich. So we, we're, <laughs> we uh, through, through a, a series of unfortunate uh, events, we have read two different articles by Alex Gorovich, one of them with a co-author. Alexi's read one called Postwork Socialism in the Catalyst magazine. That's Jacobin's theory, Jacobin's theory publication that they have. That's right. This is uh, volume six, number two, the most recent one that just came out. And I read um, the uh, Basic Income Illusion, an article from some years ago by Alex and Lucas Stenix. Um, probably pronouncing that wrong. But they're related, luckily. And so we're just going to sort of bounce ideas off of each other, uh, talking about universal basic income, the communist future utopia, and sort of, um, you know, how we get from here to there. That's but, right. <coughs> sorry. Ryan's dying at the moment. Drink I mean, some water, man. Yeah. I mean, or, drink some or beer or something. Drink, some drink something. Please. Um, but before before we get to that, got to do our standard disclaimer. We are sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. If you subscribe at the $10 a month tier, you'll get a free digital subscription to the magazine and a discounted print subscription if you want it. $5 a month will get you access to our extensive library of bonus episodes. We recently published our 250th episode. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's excellent, excellent. there's content galore in the archives there. Um, it's true. But otherwise, rate review on uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Audible, wherever you it helps get a lot your podcasts. Um, but yeah, that out of the I, way, I, I, we can get to our discussion. <laughs> Do you think we should tell people that we have uh, American Prospect branded on us under our shirts? It's it's like a <laughs> that's right. We got a, <laughs> like we got a, a, a chest. A, Size initiation, <laughs> and uh, we do have good. a full page back advertisement on the latest sure. issue. So if you want to get a print oh. issue, you can you can be part of the cool kids club and see the podcast on the on the back page. Very of the exciting! Magazine. You should do that. All right, let's get to it. But yeah, so yeah, maybe I could start with my my article that I read. And so th this is basically um, a prudential argument about UBI being sort of a magic political fix. For uh, those who don't know, what, what's UBI stand for? Universal basic it? income. So, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, a, a totally condition-free payment to every single person in the country um, you know, ratcheting up. Andrew Yang got a lot of attention with this in the presidential primary in 2020. Um, basically sort of turned him into a celebrity. His argument for it was kind of weird. Uh, you know, he was just like, the robots are going to take all our jobs. There's really no sign of that happening anywhere in the economic data. Productivity has been notably poor for the last, like, you know, 15 to 20 years. Um, I mean, to be fair to Yang, he didn't come up with that idea that automation is a problem. And, uh, you know, the left has talked about that as a problem, oh, yeah. even though it doesn't have the evidence. But it's it's, been uh, a, even though he's terrible anyway, but it wasn't his idea, right? Yeah. So, so you have like lefties talking about this as a sort of liberation from capitalist domination that like you're you're going to uh provide money to people that, so that they won't be forced to work for capitalists just to make ends meet. Then you have a sort of technocratic uh Silicon Valley inflected uh version of this which is that the welfare state is super inefficient and look at all these stupid programs. Let's just replace yeah, Charles Murray. Charles Charles Murray is into it if conditioned on uh destroying the welfare state uh, yeah. as a result. So you get rid of social security you get rid of the earned income tax credit and all of that stuff. Uh, and you just have a single flat payment to every citizen. And that just like puts them at a sort of basic standard of living. And you just reduce a lot of bureaucracy and complication. And, you know, you don't have to do welfare anymore. Um, and 
basically, their argument in the, in this piece is against a certain a kind of like a utopian, um, you know, a politically naive version of this, maybe sort of the Yang version of it more than the sort of socialist version of it, saying that like, this is a pragmatic proposal that we can get through without having to do like massive labor organizing. And, um, you know, the prospects of that happening in any actual significant fraction of like, like enough money that you could actually live off of without having to go work is completely preposterous. You just do some simple arithmetic about how much money it would cost. And, uh, you know, that, that just basically of necessity requires a massive class struggle. Um, and you're not going to get it unless you have like a fully developed socialist movement that is in control of the government. And as far as like broad strokes, like I have some quibbles in here that we can get into, but I basically agree with that. So let me see if I understand. You tell me if I've got his argument right or their, I should say their argument correct. Uh, The idea is that um, for it to truly be a basic income, a universal basic income, which means that the the actual real value and purchasing power of the amount that is given to everyone on a monthly basis or whatever, uh, that amount would be so great that it would challenge – you know, the power centers and it would challenge capital to such a degree that, uh, any candidate who tried to run on that would just be, you know, uh, who treated worse than how Bernie was treated, basically. Like it would just be, you know, absolutely demolished unless that candidate already had or unless there was a political, uh, movement in mass politics that already had, uh, done the organizing work to counter that kind of, um, you know, attack and the kind of power that would be opposed to it, something like that. And so if this is proposed as like a, a neat policy way to avoid class struggle and, and the politics of mass politics, uh, it won't work for that very reason. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you're talking about something that would be like roughly speaking a quarter of the economy. So it's a few years ago. So they say, per person, and that's a quarter of the economy. And the only way you're going to get it, like that kind of money, would be to expropriate the rich, basically. Like that's the the only realistic way, you know, uh, that wouldn't just involve, you know, sort of taxing the poor and then giving the money right back to them. You know, you got to dig into the top 1%, the massive capital ownership. And like that's just that's just like by definition going to be a brutal political struggle. And what do you say to this? Is interesting if we think about our MMT discussions with like Rohan Gray, uh, because you know there's a different theory there a little bit about like where you get the money. You don't need to get the money uh, in a certain sense, like in terms of the actual function of the government and, and money. You just you know. Uh, work the computer a little bit and change where, where who gets what, right? Um, but then as we're seeing now, there, there's questions about inflation and and um, yeah. whether real resources are being maxed out in this and all that. But uh, at the same time, he, he certainly does have his own critiques of UBI and, and the reason why the job guarantee are, are better. We can get into that uh, as well. But do, do you think the MMT arguments have any um, – I don't know. Do, do they do anything to the, the problematic uh, – picture painted by Gorovich and, and co-author? I mean, MMT, you know, is like either, if you're talking about just printing money, it's either for marginal stuff or when you're in a recession. Um, you know, you can't just print forever if if you're at, you know, close to full employment. You see today, you can get inflation. It can happen. And at that point, you need, you know, taxation not to pay for, quote unquote, the policy, but to keep the inflation down. When you're talking about something that's 26% of GDP, you know, like multiple trillions of dollars, I don't know what it would be like, like three or four trillion dollars. Like you can't just start, you can't dump that much amount of printed money into the economy, like all, like on a continuing basis. Like that would just, that would jack inflation absolutely through the roof. Um, And so you would need, some kind like the like 
it, it almost doesn't matter how you describe it. In my opinion, like, like you can right. say you're compensating for inflation or you're paying for it. Like the, the, the point is like you're hitting real resource constraints and you're going to have to take those resources from somebody if you're going to give them to everybody else. So let's take them from the rich. I like that. Yeah. But exactly. to do that, to do that, you have to have some real political power in order oh, to, yeah. to accomplish that. Yeah. You would have to have massive uh, political power. But just as a, as a side issue, the current inflation situation, as far as you understand, is is not really necessarily money supply related, right? Like maybe from, a little. From maybe. what I've read into it, like it's something like a quarter to a third the fact that the U.S. went gangbusters in stimulus. Like that has added some price pressure um, with the the PPP loans, even though they were just abs- like there was just absolute rampant, you know, fraud or or people cheesing the system a little bit. There was a ton of unemployment insurance of absolute fraud. Um, the checks. And all that stuff. I mean, we just went ham compared to, to Europe. Uh, and I think that was a good decision, you know, because like the U.S. economy is much stronger than than anywhere else, much stronger than Europe. You know, they're going to they're going to hit in a massive recession um, very, very, very soon, probably. Whereas like we're looking, hopefully, I mean, unless the Fed kills us off. The other half, you know, the two three quarters to two thirds is supply constraints. But I, you know, so it is a very sui generis, like, like situation, right. but I think it, it demonstrates that like the possibilities of printing are not endless and you have to deal with that. Like, like once you, once you reach full employment, once the economy is going hot, now you're going to have to start talking about trade-offs, about moving resources from one place to another place. But what you don't have to do is what the Fed's doing now, which is to say, I guess the only thing we can do is really screw over a bunch of people and cause unemployment. That's not necessarily what you have to do. No, no. I mean, you know, it's like they want to reduce inflation. Okay, like I agree with that goal, but their tool is so blunt. You know, like I was looking at um, the 30 year average uh, mortgage, you know, rate that that people are seeing on the market excuse me now is like uh like seven percent higher than it's been in almost 40 years something like that and this adds like like the all-in cost of what you pay to buy a house like triples compared to what it was in like 2019 and the result of that is going to be choke off the supply of new homes being built so you're you know in resource terms now you're talking about places uh, you know, with severe housing shortages and over the next few years, you're going to just completely destroy the market for new construction, you know? And so uh, like the, a lot of the, uh, where I appreciate the MMT guys talking, you know, they, they often get into the details. So you're talking about price increases. You're like, okay, where's the price increase where? coming from? That's right. What do we do about that? Yeah. yeah what can we, right. like, could we get in here with some fine grain regulation? Could we do rent controls? Could we like change, you know, start targeting different interest rates to say like, okay, we want to like choke down demand in a particular sector where things are kind of like going out of control, but we do need more houses. And so we're going to like stabilize that interest rate lower. So we incentivize more construction. This, I think that's all to the good, you know, like I appreciate that contribution. And I think that's, that's very smart. And you know, just as a general matter, you know, like thinking of the economy as like having like a gas pedal and a brake, you know, that can be a nice intuition pump, but it, it doesn't work. It's massively complicated, right, you know, right. you've yeah. got to dig into the system and see how and that's it's fair going. enough. Yeah. And so to, to, to Gorovich article that you're talking about, um, I'm sorry to, to, you know, make his co-author, uh, you know, second, uh, Lucas, <laughs> second fiddle here. Our, our but, okay. Lucas. Lucas Lucas and Alex, we'll be informal with them. Uh, Lucas and Alex, you know, do they talk about um, more than this? So I, I think you were saying their argument seems strong about the kind of cart before the horse problem that uh, – I mean, at first blush, I think what they're saying is like the UBI, if it was this powerful, would be emancipatory. Yes, it they do like. say that. It, okay, right. So – but but just – it 
won't happen unless the thing it's trying to avoid happens. Therefore, we should just reorient to the original question, which is like, how do we mobilize mass politics and class struggle? Yeah, that's basically their conclusion. Um, where, where I have some criticisms is, you know, in, in their technical details and in their sort of like dismissal of like more moderate options. Um, oh, yeah. you know, so they talk about how, uh, you know, they do, they do a sort of like elementary calculation of, uh, what, you know, what the, uh, what it would take to stack up a social wealth fund that would kick out dividends. And it would be basically like a hundred, uh, trillion dollars, which is like most of the privately held wealth in the country. And that wouldn't even come close. But if you just add up the amount of capital income there is in the country, um, which like uh, Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez uh, have done, it's something like 30% of GDP, reliably about 30% of GDP. So there's your, you know, free money. If you, and so, I mean, I think- Yeah, this, so explain, explain that. So so how, how does that uh I mean, you just, you know, you get into the national income accounts and you just look up how much is coming in the form, how much income is coming in the form of profits, rents, uh, dividends, all that kind of crap. And, uh, you know, divide by the total production. And it's roughly speaking about 30%. It's actually more than you'd need to do the $15,000, uh, UBI. And, um, they talk about, you know, the, the social wealth fund fairly extensively, but, you know, I, I think it, it, it it's, it's a, it doesn't, uh, it's not a critique of their point about it being a sort of like utopian future, but it is a very practical sort of Im way to imagine, uh, s like a system in which more or less everything else would sort of work as it, it does now with a, you know, depending on how people might respond to having this capital income at their beck and call and like whenever they want. But you're like, you just take this capital income, which goes almost exclusively to the top 10% and, and like half of it to the top 1%. And you just spread that around. It's as simple as that. And, and to be clear, what, what you're saying with the social wealth fund or the sovereign wealth fund, I, I'm not very clear why people have different names or what the import of the distinction is. Social but, is uh, when you're, uh, you're using it on behalf of society. Sovereign wealth fund is mm -hmm. like Saudi Arabia, where they're giving it to ah. Uber and SoftBank, you know, to like I burn, okay. uh, set up mountains of cash and but set them on fire. In this country, uh, the people are sovereign. So maybe the distinction is <laughs> That's a, right. a little different. The, the yeah. American Republic. So, <laughs> the yeah, right. Are we the, the people? people? By the people, for the people. We're for the people. That is yeah. an accurate description of our politics. <laughs> it's a look what it's, it's aspirational, right? Uh, but no, so let, let me, to be clear, what you're suggesting is the federal government uh, swoops in and buys up like 30% of the shares of all the companies that are producing the capital income. All the shares. And so- or oh, it buys all the shares. If they owned all the, if if we as a people, are we talking owned, about nationalizing everything? What are we talking about here? What, if what we, we as a people owned all the wealth, like in some Vanguard oh, fund, of course. Yeah, I see, I see, I see. That thirty okay. percent of the national income would come to we the people. That's it's right. it's it's that's it's that simple slash that insanely difficult to imagine. <laughs> okay, so what what we're saying is we we'd have to. Uh, <laughs> We'd have to have the, the public capture all of the current wealth being produced, and then the dividend that everyone gets would be a third of the the GDP, and that would be did you is that that's the fifteen k per person more? Yeah, it would be that. it would be a bit more than that. Yeah, it would. Be, okay. They're talking about twenty six percent of GDP. This so would be thirty. You're saying that. In other words, the social wealth is there, is what you're saying, yeah. to do something like this. And, and, and the fact that it's capital income means it wouldn't disrupt anything, Me meaning like redistributing that in this way wouldn't um, prevent the, the continued production of the wealth. Or, or like, is that, that's part of the point here is that like there's enough money where the capital interest itself, right, could just keep coming to people, even if we don't change anything about, uh, how things are being produced other than who owns the wealth, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you have the example of this already. The the Vanguard invest passive investment fund is just people own like a fraction of the whole stock market. Um, this is now a huge fraction. I don't know exactly much, but something like a third maybe of all the equities are owned by these passive vehicles. They're like, well, I'm not going to try to beat the market. I'm just going to try to own a slice of everything. And uh, if they can do it on behalf of institutional investors, mainly rich people, why couldn't the government do the same thing? It's just as as simple as that. And, you know, there are some uh, uh, objections to this. We're like, okay, now we'd have no competition in the market, you know, and so like that would screw up the whole sort of information transmission function of the stock market insofar as you believe that's a thing. But you could sort of say like, okay, we're going to set up like three or four different investment funds and they're going to compete against each other. So you have some trading and that will sort of, you know, replicate the function of how it exists now. But like, I think as a, as a fundamental, like if the government, the people through their government owned all of the wealth, then that would be basically enough to give every single person in the country uh, a competence, as they would say in the 19th century. Like, like that's a, a bit above poverty level income for an individual. And, uh, that's your sort of, I, I feel like a sort of, you know, a u- utopian goal. We spent a, we spent a long time on the sort of technical details of it, but I think, you know, they're still right about the fact that doing that would be incredibly controversial. Like that would be a sure. titanic political struggle to try to do that. That's absolutely right. the case. But I, you know, as a technical matter, like the option is it's there. Possible. Yeah. So this is probably a good transition to the piece that, that I read for today. And, uh, even though we both meant to read the same article, I think this works quite well that we read different articles. Yeah. Because uh, the, the piece I read, and we'll link to both of them, although I think they're both paywalled. Um, get around the paywall, baby. Uh, <laughs> Torrent these articles. Or, yeah, or or subscribe to Catalyst. Um, Gorovich, in his post-work socialism piece, he has the same kind of critique of UBI, but it's folded into a, an overall critique of um, a kind of binary he draws between two different visions uh, of freedom on the left and, and what socialist um, life should look like in, in the kind of post-capitalist uh, world, right? So, so what imaginaries are we playing with? What principles um, and, and specifically what understandings of freedom are we advocating and what um, what will work pragmatically in terms of the actual technical function of the economy under these different visions from the left? And, and what pragmatically will actually more likely than not move us in the right direction? This is where he's drawing a line between his vision and the vision of those that share his understanding of um, – of how to think about work and freedom versus what he calls the post-work uh, socialist left. Okay. So yeah. UBI is obviously part and parcel of this critique that he thinks and associates with the post-socialist left or the post-work left because he thinks that – and he cites various thinkers um, from James Livingston to Kathy Weeks – to, um, you know, any number of, of thinkers on the left, um, who he says, and, and I'm going to focus a little bit less on how accurate he is. Uh, I think there are probably inaccuracies and, and straw, uh, straw men that he uh, develops. But, uh, in any case, he characterizes them all as being oriented against work, as it were, uh, in their framing of what utopian visions they have or what ideals they have for a socialist future. So, so like, for example, he says that um, the problem with capitalism, uh, according to this vision, is uh, that work is alienating and work is exploitative. And, and, and of course, he agrees with all these terrible um, truths about work under capitalist social relations he says, though, that their response is to say, you know what, we need to try to 
reduce the amount of hours worked. We need to propose a universal basic income so that people can have the choice, not be forced to work. You know, the problem with capitalism, he says, from their perspective is people are forced to work in these terrible conditions. And wouldn't it be great if people had the ability because of a UBI to just refuse and say, you know what? I don't have to choose these shit from these shitty options. I opt out. I can, I can just choose not to work. Right. Yeah. Um, and so he's kind of outlining their vision there and he's setting up this, this problematic, which is that, look, the left, if it realizes its vision, is going to have a lot of socially necessary labor that's required. Yes. You know? And if the, uh, UBI is presented as something that allows individuals to choose to opt out of contributing to society through work, um, then the problem you're going to have is you literally won't be able to have a UBI that has the purchasing power if the prices are so high because there's a shortage of goods and such produced because so many people are opting not to work. Like it, it's kind of a performative contradiction that like, you know, either your goal of people deciding, you know what, I don't need to work can't be realized because people actually do have to produce the goods or, you know, it will be too expensive because not enough people are producing the goods. And if, and, and so the UBI can't actually keep pace in terms of its real value with the prices and so forth. So this is his first critique. I don't know what you think about that part, that piece right there. Yeah. I, I think that, <clears throat> I mean, there's certainly, uh, something to be said for that. Um, I, that, that it would be highly inadvisable to, to just like, you know, if you could fiat in, as they say, like, like in debate club, like, like you could ju just like put in a, um, UBI such that if people didn't feel like working, they didn't have to work. Like that would probably knock the legs out from under the whole economic system. Um, the, the, it, re it reminds me of, uh, there's a famous like parody ad of ask, ask me. I don't know if you've seen this. The, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in. Um, but just, you know, like, like we're the workers doing a lot of shit work that you people take for granted, you know, that <laughs> like, like there are a lot of jobs out there and we're seeing this today in like the, the railroads are having real trouble hiring people and the sanitation departments and the, the, the subway system. You know why? Cause those workers are getting railroaded. You know what I mean? <laughs> They are. They are. I mean, in the case of specifically the freight railroads, absolutely fucked. Um, you know, and this, the, it's an open question, I suppose, as to whether like it has to be that way. I think it doesn't, but that's, I'm like sort of dogmatic about that point. I don't think you need to have a railroad where, you know, like as the sort of unions, have been arguing over the last, they almost had a strike. Biden intervened. They got some concessions. It, I think it's still up in the air. Uh, but like, you know, they're, they're running these, these people are paid pretty well, but their working conditions are terrible. You know, you're going all across the country. They're working like 24 hour shifts. It's, you're just on call all the time. You can't schedule anything and it's dangerous. You know, you're, you're running these trains and because of like Wall Street bean counters have been like, well, let's just fucking pile more cars on. It's like a two mile train and there's one guy running it. And so, you know, it's like, oh, one of your couplers is fucked up. You got to walk on the side of the train uh, in the, you know, the broken, sharp gravel. If you've seen the, you know, the way the train lines are run there, they, they put the, the, the sleepers and the rails and it's all on top of gravel to give it some, some room to move around. So you don't break, you know, it's like a little, uh, cushion basically. You're walking down, you know, one, two, three miles maybe to find this thing and fix it and then back all the way. And on the meantime, poor, you're blocking poor the, Bob. It's a terrible job. And so, like, you know, uh, that's fucked up the entire American rail system. And so I think that it, it tends to demonstrate that, like, you would, you know, you, you would have to be to be cautious. I mean, maybe like a period of reform, maybe something sort of like what is happening now, where it's like you, the labor market is red hot. 
people are paying lots of money. They're desperate for workers. And the, 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 the places with absolute shit work, they can't find, uh, they can't find people to take the jobs. And so it's going to be like you improve your conditions, more money, more benefits, sick leave, all the, all the stuff that makes work tolerable and can allow, you know, maybe to, uh, you know, to sort of pivot to, uh, Gorovich's point to, to sort of like start thinking about an ethos of, uh, like broadly speaking, social work. No, not, not like social work in the sense of, uh, you know, going <laughs> okay, to help. Like mental health. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, like once you have doing a, the, doing the socially necessary labor. Yeah. You have need. a competence, you're, you're paid well. And then you can think, well, I'm the, I'm the freight rail guy. Without me, this country falls to pieces. That's true. And you're not like, oh, I got my fucking leg caught in the, you know, coupler and now I'm, you know, disabled yeah, for life. Exactly. I, this reminds me of the essential workers uh, discourse, right? Like we're caught between two different ways of thinking on the left about labor, which is one, it's oppressive and fucked and, and like it sucks and it's terrible. And therefore, like we need to rescue people from it. And on the other hand, it's the linchpin of everything. And it's so vital. and We all need each other and we're interdependent. And like, if we don't have these things that some people do, we're all totally screwed. And but, but like, there's a way to integrate those truths, uh, that is different from how capitalism deals with those realities, right? And I think this is, gets to the core of what Gorovich is wrestling with here. And I, and I have, um, some critiques of his critique, but, uh, but I agree with a lot of it as well. Yeah. Let me just say his vision makes sense to me, which is kind of, it comports with like what we've talked about with Hogland and so forth. The idea, uh, you know, we've talked about Rohan, with Rohan Gray, uh, the job guarantee and, and the idea in socialism that like, unless you're disabled or elderly or, you know, that the Marxist line from critique of the Gotha, Gotha prog- program, um, you know, the principle that uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, uh, that is a great principle because what it says is those who can't do should be provided for and those who can do have a duty and obligation to serve and, and help and pitch in. Yeah. That is all, that is all absolutely true. That's all good. And it has a lot of great, you know, uh, cascading consequences from understanding that. Like we are not talking about liberal atomistic individualism where freedom is everyone doing whatever they want, including not participating in society or helping out or, or serving anyone. That's not what socialism thinks freedom is, right? Freedom can comport with obligations to serve others and to, to freely choose how to use your talents in service of the common good, right? That's really important. So I'm on board with all of that. But, um, if I return to his critique, his, his critique about the UBI as not thinking through the mode of production and then his corresponding critique that the post work lefts a, a kind of negative, um, rhetoric, I should say, about work. He, you know, he finds it problematic because he thinks it's very important in his vision of socialist freedom to think about the value of work, as you just pointed out, like uh, the, the, how good it is to do the right thing. But what we're doing is we're temporally conflating the future and the present. We're conflating yeah. a future that doesn't have the domination, exploitation, uh, and, and problems with current capitalist social relations and, and, and work under capitalism. Um, you know, so, so, so like when you, when you conflate those things, it's easy to see where the confusion is. Uh, and it's not that hard to say, well, the post work left is absolutely right that the current work ethic ethos is absolutely, uh, corrupted and perverse and doesn't apply to the owners of capital who don't do any fucking work. And like, they're not chastised for not working, you know, and stigma that attaches to the poor and unemployed, like all of that should actually be undermined. And this is the thing, Kathy Weeks in particular, in her book, the problem with work, feminism, Marxism, anti-work politics and post-work imaginaries is right there in the title, post-work imaginaries. She wants to use a vision of um, a social life that's much like the one I think uh, Alex Gorovich and and perhaps Lucas in, in the other article advance. Uh, that is some 
something to head towards. But right here and now, to get there, we have to undermine the logic of capitalism. And to do that, something like the UBI says, we disconnect, we, we demand a disconnect between people's ability to survive and whether they work or not. You do not have to work in order to survive according to this ethos. The universal basic income implicitly says, I don't care who you are, you deserve to have your basic needs met, right? And like that is, as a demand, something I think that is important to shift us out of the capitalist logic that says, no, 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 uh, you don't deserve to live if you don't serve the the machine, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm not like terribly worried about, you know, the 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 question of whether or not people will want to work. Like you're going to create a nation of welfare queens, you know. That's right, exactly. The, the, That's right. If if you can if you can set up a UBI, you can set up a labor system such that you know, the work, like there's lots and lots of meaningful work that's available, you know, that, that like the, the, that the work that needs to be done will be remunerated fairly and it will be respected, you know, to be like, I'm a bus driver, like bus drivers are central fucking arteries of, you know, like, like the doing the shit that needs to be done so that people can live you know that this is important stuff oh i'm a fast food cook oh i feed people so they don't die you know and that's the thing so with the ubi the pressure on the companies who pay those people will be to to make the conditions of their work not so terrible so that their primary thought isn't oh my god i can't believe i'm working and i barely can feed myself or oh my god you know, the, the safety of my occupation is terrible or the hours I have to work are terrible. The, the, the market forces being messed with there are such that it's more likely people will want to work even though they're receiving the UBI. So the UBI won't necessarily make people – I mean, here's I think the mistake. Just just by saying that the UBI, UBI gives people the, the ability to refuse – doesn't mean that the result is a bunch of refusals. It means that there's now pressure on employers to make it so they don't refuse, to make it yeah. more attractive to work. And, and, and that's a kind of shaping of the work conditions themselves that is good, right? As it's, it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you, the, the welfare queen is a stereotype. You, you do see sort of like subpopulations of people that like you have chronically high unemployment you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is entirely an artifact of not driving labor demand down into those demographics. People want to work. People want to participate in society. I mean, like work per se, like that's all been shaped by the history of capitalism. But like people want stuff to do. They want like like a routine. They want spending money, you know. They want to be useful. If those those kind of positions are readily available. They pay well. The conditions aren't bad. You will have full employment. Um, and, and it's just a question of how you set up the system. No, I think that's right. Yeah. And maybe this, this like sort of brings us back to some more kind of like prudential. The article that I read is, is very much about prudential wisdom and like, how do we get from here to there? You know, sure. the agreeing with the idea of the the UBI, okay, we have to expropriate the entire business class. <laughs> that, <laughs> well, what about the prudential question in my article, which he says, if you talk about work on the left as if it's a bad thing, that's the wrong move because we need to start – the way he puts it is not um, rejecting the, the work ethic but reframing the work ethic. And so instead of capitalism talking about the work ethic in the way that it does in its capitalist terms, which is bad, we need to reframe it in terms of how uh, work and, and the value of it is good in, in the sense of serving society, the, the socialist vision of the role of work. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Because I, I do think this post-work left has a point when it comes to, in current conditions, the power to say, you know what? 
I don't have to do that shitty job. I don't have to work extra hours. I don't have to risk getting COVID. Uh, in fact, we should demand shorter hours. We should demand more leisure time. We should try to automate whatever shitty things can be automated. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, I don't think we have to reject those arguments because I think they're good arguments. I think it's good to reduce working hours, to automate things and to, you know, make working conditions better. I don't see why that he's proposing that there is this fundamental rift between that approach and the approach that says work is good because it's good for society. Everyone should think of work positively. Um, and I think we can reconcile these two things, right? Yeah. I, I, I am not particularly worried that, you know, the tiny socialist left is going to instill an epidemic of laziness. You know, I, I think you could, you could, you could thread the needle by saying bad work, bad leisure, good, you know, that, that like, there is so many work tasks that are set up in a way that is dangerous, that, that, that causes like long-term illness or injury yep. that, That's that right. just fucking sucks you know, uh, the shithead Just bosses, yeah. all all the stuff that that people talk about um, on you know Reddit, uh, anti works, uh, yeah. the subreddit there, um, and then you know, secondly, like even if work is good, it's important to limit the number of hours that you're working. You know, the like the point of work you're contributing to society, but productivity is chugging along. Uh, it's easily possible for, you know, a middle class, upper middle class person to make enough income in rich countries to uh, to live off of uh, with 30 hours a week for four day yeah. work week. And that will give you more time to do the things that you want so that it's not, you know, OK, you got to put your hours in to make your money to like provide for the society and so on. But thanks to technology, you also have like an in increasingly and you would think, you know, over time that will grow and grow and grow uh, time to do whatever the hell you want to. You know, you you could yeah. you could pick up work like tasks, could do shipping a bottle or something or go on vacation, travel the world, um, write uh, socialist manifestos or poetry, <laughs> whatever you feel like. Yeah, no, but, but Korovich has objections. He says that, look, so I can identify a number of objections in what you said for, from his perspective. One of them is uh, the UBI does tend to have this national – um, scope and perspective. So, okay, maybe he even says, so, so let's, let's take one extreme example. He says, okay, maybe the UBI in the United States could work where, uh, you know, people hardly do any work here as long as, uh, you know, the kind of the rest of the world or the, the third world, as it were, is kind of taken advantage of. And, and they have to work a lot so that people in the U.S. get to have a lot of leisure time. Um, that's not a socialist vision, right? There's an internationalism that we have to think about. Um, and so, you know, that, that's one of his arguments. Okay. Maybe if you're in a privileged country that's rich and powerful like the U.S., maybe you can, you know, exploit other people and that could serve as your, you know, UBI source, something like that. Um, but then he also says, uh, I think again, this is a kind of technical argument that, that maybe we could dispute that, um, it's just not going to work to to try to maximize leisure time for people because in people's leisure time or in the kind of Marxist vision of um, people doing even what you're saying, self-realization stuff, self-actualization stuff, uh, that requires – he says people often forget that requires resources. You know, what, what, uh, unless you're just um, – I mean, maybe if you're just writing a manifesto or writing poetry or something, but, uh, most forms of sexual self actualization, um, I almost said sex, sex actualization, <laughs> which I don't know. It's one of the most require. important leisure activities here. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting resources to draw upon there. No. So, so, you know, he's saying, you know, these things require, uh, wealth, essentially. These things require not just raw materials, but raw materials that are produced into things that you can use to self-actualize or whatever. And who's doing all of that, right? Uh, never mind the thing he says about who's doing all the, the shit work no one wants to do. Uh, is that just going to be incentivized through, um, you know, either he says there are three ways to get people to do things. Force, 
culture slash norms basically or or market incentives where you just make the the garbage uh you know people take out the trash like really rich or something yeah and it's like you know he addresses these you know the left doesn't want force and and so uh, the culture norms of ubi seem to suggest that it's the opposite of the work ethic you know so that's not going to work and then okay if we're back to incentives now you know we we have different problems because now we're back to like market forces i don't know so what, what what do you think of those objections there well i uh you know i don't i don't think it would be possible to uh, to 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 support like a united states where no one worked at all uh off the back of like the the dollars like global trade hegemony like that would collapse sooner or later yeah. um but I, I guess I don't like, know. Who wants I'm, that though? That's just an unrealistic vision of the human being and what the human being wants to do, right? Yeah, I mean, there, we we've we've had two hundred and fifty years of capitalist cultural hegemony beating into our heads like the value of work, um, and there's just like a workable model already in Europe of uh, saying like, okay, you do your work. It's important to work. It's important to get a good job. But when the job is done, then you have yeah, your leisure time. Your time. Yeah. So you you know it's it's a uh, it's it's both ends. It's a balance. Yeah. yeah, and 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 I would say also that like that is an important like climate policy uh, to to say that like no we're going to take our productivity increases in the form of leisure time rather than more income and therefore more consumption and more emissions you know that like you look at France and Germany you know what what are the the bleeding edge countries in terms of productivity per hour uh you know bracketing weirdo outliers like Norway or or Qatar or uh you know Liechtenstein it's just a fucking tax haven there um USA France Germany they, those are the leading countries uh but the GDP total in France and Germany is much lower than the US well the reason is th- they work like 500 fewer hours than we do <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, and, and yet it's still a flourishing society. It's more flourishing, in fact, than, than in the United States. You know, so, so I think that that's that like they, they ratcheted that down over decades, starting in the 1960s. Um, I and- do think, yeah, I, I do think there is a, you know, uh, all of that is right. And I think Gorovich would say, though, that, um, you know, uh, the left's vision of freedom can't just be leisure because part of what needs to be inculcate, inculcated is that um, what work is chosen to do has to be democratically planned. And it's not just that everyone does some job that like they do because they're remunerated in the right way and then without respect to, uh, sure. you know how it affects other people, climate change and so forth. But instead it needs to be this collectively understood thing that we figure out together and and all that. Uh, And that then tends to blur the line between labor and leisure because, you know, as we've discussed with the kind of the Hogland episodes, um, if you're uh, getting your, your kind of basic needs met regardless of what you do, but then you, you choose to do something because it's meaningful for me to do care work uh, or what have you, right? Then is that is that work as opposed to leisure? Uh, because we also tend to think of our leisure time as like time we get to spend with loved ones. And it's like, okay, well, now we're blurring the lines here because what we're saying is like it doesn't matter whether you're spending time caring for people in your free time or in your paid time in a sense – as long as like what you're doing with your life overall seems to be conducive to meeting the needs uh, that are socially required, right? Of uh, so so like it, th- there is a kind of interesting question there of whether it's unhelpful to think of the binary of like there's work time, but then there's my time in a socialist vision that says, well, actually, work is not about you know not you. Work is about how you relate to other people. Um, yeah. And and maybe we should kind of explode that binary and make it fuzzier or something. 
I don't know what the import of all that is, but like there's something to that, I guess. I yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. You I think you could you could say that what what you need to create is a sort of social ethic of solidarity like in in work and out of work. Um that that like right. it's important if you're an able-bodied person, you need to get a job, you need to do something useful, and you should be proud of that that you're contributing. You're paying the taxes to keep grandma out of the poorhouse, um, and so on and so forth. Also, no poorhouses under socialism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and then you know when you're when you're not working, that the like there's all kinds of things you could do in a similar fashion. Um, you know, you you could uh, invite grandma on vacation. You you could you could volunteer. Um, you know, you, you, I mean, even if you're just doing hedonistic trip trips to Greece, <laughs> you, you can invite your friends. You can have it be right. a, a communal experience. Exactly right. Facilitate, you know, human flourishing in our communities with our relationships with loved ones. Um, and I think what you're saying is right for both the way that socialist freedom and socialist duty and socialist flourishing can, um, reduce consumption because the way to freedom and the way to enjoyment is not just purchasing goods that were mass produced, right? Yeah. Because you're exhausted from overworking. So all you want to do is like buy something to fill the void or like binge a bunch of Netflix. That form of life is going to be less necessary and attractive because of the shorter work week, because of the, the leisure time, because of the extra disposable income, right? And, and like all of that probably will reduce energy consumption and all and production, uh, right? I mean, the, the, you know, Gordovich acknowledges some of this and we will eliminate a bunch of bullshit jobs and bullshit work that are, uh, you know, using a lot of energy to no purposeful end and like, that's all I, I think we can reconcile all of that with the current refusal of bad work and the current desire to escape bad working conditions. And, and, and for Kathy Weeks, the, the acknowledgement of unpaid labor, uh, especially, you know, domestically and social reproduction, um, and all that goes into that. So like, yeah. On the left, I tend to see whether it's the debates between UBI and job guarantees, sovereign wealth fund, social wealth fund, a lot of different um, policy tools that fit with mass politics in the class struggle that are somehow always positioned as if they're either or, or they have to be oppositional. And I don't understand that. I think these are all things that can complement one, uh, one another in the right, um, in the right way if they're thought of together. Uh, and, um, and, and for Kathy Week specifically, like the demand to untether, uh, meeting basic needs from, employment, I think is an emancipatory, uh, revolutionary reform. Like I think that right now, even if it was a thousand dollars a month, even, you know what I mean? Like that would be an obvious unmitigated positive thing to do for people. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know we have inflation questions now, right. But, but still, I, I think these, these kinds of things, um, to your point would not lead people to be like, Oh, I've got twelve or fifteen thousand dollars for the year. No need for me to make any more money. Like that's an insane thought. First of all, <laughs> like of course people are going to want to make more money than that to have a bit yeah. more disposable income. Especially um, if you have employers like knocking down their door, being like, "Come on, right, come work for right. twenty dollars yeah, an hour." Out. Yeah, and at that point, then no one is forced to do the shit jobs. But maybe some people want. You know, you're like, I actually don't mind doing that particular shit job i i want to make a little extra money you know like, yeah i don't think that's an impossible vision that we can get to from where we are now yeah you could imagine the you know like like if you actually run this forward for a while to where like the worst jobs are the best paid it's like if you're yeah. you're a guard man and you make like three hundred thousand dollars a year you know that sure. like, like that's yeah. not out of the realm of possibility but as you were saying is sort of like incremental changes I think that this, this, uh, brings back to what I was saying earlier, you know, that, that, uh, I, I think that Gorovich and, uh, uh, Lucas Stanics, um, they, they underrate the, the, the plausibility of moderate UBIs. Um, you know, they absolutely, they talk about the, uh, 
the Alaskan Permanent Fund, but they they misdescribe it. Uh, they they say it's a payment out of oil revenues. That's not how it works. It was seeded with oil revenues. It actually owns a bunch of like capital. It it owns uh, investments all over the place, and the payment comes out of the investment returns. And the uh, the payment in 2022 was three thousand two hundred eighty four dollars. Uh, that is a quite significant amount. I mean, you're, you're per year, like, right. That's, that's every year more than a fifth. I mean, that's big. Be- that's bigger because they added an energy top up, but you know, yeah. you're 10 to 15% of the way to the $15,000 UBI. And this right. is in a notoriously conservative state. And it was in fact set up by an elite technocratic guy who just had this idea, Jay Hammond, who was governor of of uh, Alaska, and he just had this idea. We have all these natural resources. They should be shared collectively. We'll set it up as an investment fund that will pay out per capita dividends. He tried it with fish. He tried it with taxes. It didn't work. Then he tried it with oil revenues, and he was governor. That passed, and that's been there since the 1970s. It's very sticky. You know, you you have this thing that pays out thousands of dollars to every person in Alaska. It's popular. If you were to get rid of that, you would be you would be in the shitter politically. That's the thing about universal benefits, and that's why universal benefits are always preferable to means tested or or, or particularized targeted benefits. Um, yeah, and you know. and so like. It, I think it was politically easier for Hammond because you had natural resources. Like this is very obviously not the property of anybody. You know, it's like this oil. It should be owned on public by, land. It was oil on public land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so you know, it was easier for him to sort of set it up like that. But in principle, there's no reason why you couldn't do the same. Like he tried to do originally, you know, it's just like, we'll set up a tax thing. We'll buy some shit. We'll have the investment returns and we'll pay out a dividend. It was, it was just like, it was almost a fixation for him. Um, and you know, you could absolutely do that same thing in the United States. Just, just, it doesn't, you know, you're, it would be very difficult to buy all the stock market, but sure. It, it it would not be impossible, I don't think, to build up a significant equity position uh, in the, you know, let's say, let's say 10% of the stock market. And that That's would right. be... Uh, and any, any such advance is a utopian demand in the sense that Kathy Weeks means it, which is that like, it's utopian, not in the sense that it's not achievable. It's utopian in the sense that it undermines the logic of the system. Yes. Because what it says is, no, 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 no. The government actually can do amazing things for its people. And here's evidence of that. And that leads people to think, oh, wait then there must be more that's possible if that's possible. Right. Yeah. And it sets up, I think in uh, an appealing logic, They're like, okay, we own 10% of the equities. Well, why shouldn't we own 11% or exactly 12% right. and the yeah. business Which class, is- they're going to mobilize against that. But I mean, I think the, 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 the power of welfare payments going out to every person like yes. that is a much harder to resist. And that's a strong incentive politically. I mean, it, it's, it's very sticky. And I think that they underrate the possibility of, of a moderate UBI as in Alaska right. being sort of a camel's nose under the tent type of thing um, to, you know, get this sort of thing started. That, that sure. And then you start to couple that with a few other, you know, ideas like the job guarantee or like once you start yeah. to, you know, each to, to her own policy weapons, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and, and because uh, look, it's important what you're saying is exactly why it was so necessary for the forces that be to make sure that the money people got during the COVID stimulus was framed as, oh, that was for an emergency. That's not something the government usually does. That was like a one-time thing. Yeah. It's also, we, we mean tested that. That was, you know, they people have to construe the, well, yeah, because people loved it. And you have to really say, no, no, everyone, this was a one-time thing. Just don't 
think that we'll do this again, you know, uh, because it's dangerous to, to, uh, to capital, to make, to make it seem like, no, no, this is actually the role of the state. To yeah. Do stuff like this. The government could just write you a check whenever it wants. And like, yeah. I mean, we pay for it. It can it with solve borrowing. these problems because people have been convinced that these problems are just unsolvable. This is just, uh, that's just the market doing its thing. Yeah. And, and if they start to get wind of the fact that, oh, markets are highly influenced by the decisions of powerful state actors. Oh, okay. You can vote yourself rich. It's literally that simple. <laughs> I mean, the rich do it, right? Yes, they do. <laughs> they must have done. That's the only way to do it. It's through politics. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So that's my final thought on, on these pieces, one of which I read, <laughs> which is, which is that I appreciate Gorovich. You know, there's a, apparently, a, uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal, this line by John Stuart Mill that in an intellectual debate, each side is correct in what it affirms, but incorrect in what it denies, <laughs> which I think is quite clever, you know? Uh, and I think we can integrate the truths because I think Gorovich uh, and, and Lucas in your piece are correct about um, the need for mass politics, the need for class struggle, um, the importance uh, of not losing sight of that in yes. terms of actually getting real transformation to occur. But I think they're they're giving short shrift to how to get there and the way that the kind of so much on the, the post-work left is more in touch with the current social relations and the oppression and, and the, the liberatory way that some of these measures, whether it's a moderate UBI uh, or other utopian demands, could get people to imagine a different world and to make political demands now that have an effect now that do really help people if we can get them, um, you know, through in some way, even if they're not themselves completely revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, yeah. That's basically my my main criticism is that I agree that you're you're to a first approximation not going to get anything good, anything really good. Um Biden has, you know, passed a bunch of decent stuff, but as far as like transformative change, you need a labor movement. I totally agree That's with right. that. But I think yeah. that he underrates the possibility of sort of uh what you might call revolutionary reforms you know like like yeah, exactly reforms right. that set up a logic of further extension and further uh, advancement um yeah. and did you see is it california that is um or or maybe just an, a number of states around the country i have to look at the the news piece that i saw on it a lot of like locally run um basic income programs. I won't call them universal because a lot of them are like means tested, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but like a number of programs where city level uh, governments are just saying, Hey, let's just, you know, give a thousand bucks a month to people below this, you know, this line or whatever. Yeah. And, and like, as much as we would object to the fact that that isn't universal and that's means tested and all that still better than not doing that. It's yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like, like experiments in, uh, countering the kind of logic of capital, which says, if you don't earn the money yourself, you're fucked. And, and you know what? Okay. Maybe there's some welfare state there for you, but we're going to make that a huge bureaucracy and we're going to jump you through a bunch of hoops and uh, anything that counters that kind of approach there's momentum with that, especially when they're successful and they alleviate social problems, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's been a number of basic income experiments. There's one in Finland, the, um, the, the Switzerland philanthropist communities done a number of them in Africa and the results are just universally positive. People work more. So this is another counter to Gorovich, I think. In, in a lot of those studies, the net result is um, uh, increase in the, in the labor force. Yeah, I don't think that's surprising either if you think about it. You know, it's like, like who, who are the people who don't work? The most demoralized, you know, just beaten down, hopeless people in the country. And, you know, you, you give somebody just a little bit of money in like Kenya or something and like, Oh, I could just like buy a cheap motorcycle and I could like start doing a little delivery business or something like, like yeah. suddenly I'm introduced back into society again. And like, I'm, my life is not 
a complete right. waste. Or I can now take care of my kid and go to school and now yeah. I have a career. Any of a thousand <laughs> like, possibilities. Yeah. You know, that just like the total like having a, a competence, as I was saying, it's like like just a, enough to live off. Like that is, I would say, just the, the bare minimum for human flourishing, which includes work if you're capable of doing it, which is almost everybody in some way or another. Um, and that, you know, we can, we could maybe get there, Star Trek utopia or something, but <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't strike me as, as implausible psychologically, at least at all. Um, people, right. people want to interact with each other. They want to participate in society. Right. They want to feel useful. This is, yes. I mean, instilled by capitalism, among other things. Well, yes. we can harness that. And sometimes, and, I, and this is my final thought, your point about solidarity in and out of the workplace is key. Right now, sometimes, depending on the context, we should push for people to not have to work. We should push for people uh, sometimes to to um, refuse work. Sometimes yeah. we should push for people to just get paid better. Um and we should push for whatever helps people flourish together in their communities and their relationships, whether or not that means more or less work in the, in the short, medium term. Right. And, and sometimes that means paying people not to work. Sometimes that makes, uh, you know, means supporting policies that, that just, um, put pressure on employers to, to make work more attractive. There's any of number of manifestations, but the principle should always be with an eye towards interdependence and solidarity regardless. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to end on, I think. Um, this was fun, brother. I'm yeah. glad uh, we read different articles that went together well. <laughs> this is our classic ultra-professional left-acre work <laughs> process. But I honestly think it maybe turned out better than it would have otherwise. So now yeah. we're, you know, we have different com competing articles to bash against each we other. We learned from each other. That's right. Yeah. That's right. See, people, it could be a beautiful process to fuck up. Yeah. That's what Megan McArdle taught me. Um, but thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we will see you in the next episode.